Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, if there's any here that do not know you as the Father and know you as Lord of heaven, would you expose them to you this morning? Would you enlighten their hearts and their minds and may they come and embrace who you are? And Father, we are expectant this morning that you're going to meet with us. So prepare our hearts, Lord, that we may respond to the Holy Spirit's work in all that we do. Not only the message, but the scripture reading, the singing, the praying, and even just the greeting that we're going to do. Lord, that you may encourage us, that we may be lifted up. And Lord, that we may glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 12. As we continue in our study of Mark, let me ask you, who likes to pay taxes? Who likes to pay taxes this morning? Anyone here? Anyone here wanting, uh, desiring to pay more? Now, I know that we'd like to get more, but are you willing to to pay more for taxes? Anyone here interested in limiting how much they pay in taxes? How much control should we give our government? What about men in girls' bathrooms or girls in men's bathrooms? Are we ready to accept the redefinition of marriage? Should we abandon our opposition to abortion? What do we think about gene manipulation before and during and in the womb? These are a lot of issues that face us today as Christians, especially when we live in a day and age when it seems like the government and Christianity are finding themselves clashing against each other. What are we to do? Well, last week we read that the rejection of Jesus is marvelous. Let me say that again. The rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders and those of Israel is actually marvelous. And it is marvelous because it has opened the door for Gentiles, you and I, to become sons and daughters of God. The stone that was discarded becomes the cornerstone of the church, the body of Christ. Jesus, the rejected Messiah, becomes the great high priest, the last prophet, and the final king. This Jesus, who the religious leaders hate and seek to put to death, has been highly exalted by God, and he was given a name that is above every name, and that it's at his name every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. In today's passage, Mark records yet again another confrontation with the religious and political leaders that takes the form of questions. Before we begin, I'd like to read this passage that's found in Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17, where he says, And they sent him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, 
Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Father, let us marvel at your son this morning. Let us hear him anew and fresh. Through your Holy Spirit, let your word come alive and may we see the relevancy it has for us today. And Father, may we make sense of what your word has for us as we approach it once again, the hardness and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And Father, I pray that you would strike from our heart any hypocrisy, any hardness of heart. That Father, that we may not only marvel but unlike religious leaders, we may worship your son. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to give five observations about this passage. Famous passage, should we pay taxes? This is usually what it comes down. What's the role? What's the connection between government and Christianity? What, what is lawful? I want to give you five observations about this passage. The first is that what you and I need to understand about this passage is that above all else, their aim, their goal is to try to trap Jesus. That's what we're seeing in verse 13. It says they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They want to trap Jesus. Now what's coming in is a new group, not just the religious leaders, but now a political group called the Herodians. Now the Herodians openly supported the reigning family of Herod and its pro-Roman sympathies. Herod and his family were actually not Jewish, though he was the king of the Jews. He was not Jewish, but he was from Idiom, Israel's cousins and ancient enemy. If you're thinking of it, it comes from the family of Esau rather than the family of Isaac. So they were not the children of Abraham or the promised children of Abraham. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not naturally friendly towards each other. As I said before, the Herodians, they were pro-Herod. And the Pharisees were not. He was not a Jew. He should not be on the throne. But not only that, but Herod was pro-Rome. He served under the guise and under the friendliness of Rome. And that brought them as natural enemies. However, they come together uh, at this moment by adopting the philosophy that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They come together in order to trap Jesus. Since the religious leaders could not find any traction in attacking Jesus' authority, his message, and his ministry, they now begin a different ploy. They want to trap him. And their approach, the second thing we'll see, the second observation, is that the way they're going to approach Jesus is interesting enough, is through flattery. Have you ever had someone do that to you? They approach you through flattery? They want something from you. they got an agenda and they start with flattery. And they come to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinions. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is this something that's not condescending or what? Can you, you can almost hear the snake oil coming out. I think as they were talking, the forked tongue and the hissing could be seen and heard. We know that, you know, it just comes in that kind of voice. I don't know. And there's something about flatterers, you know. There, there's something about them that just sets you not at ease. Their approach is to flatter Jesus, thinking that they can tackle him and catch him on a guards. Now, what we see their attack, when it comes to attack, 
The third observation is that the attack consists of asking a political and religious question. They're going to ask him a political and religious question. It's both political and religious. The two things that you need to, to avoid if you're at a good dinner conversation, right? If you don't want to get in an argument, stay away from politics and religion. But look at verse 14. It says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay to them or should we not? They're asking a political and a theological. Now, it's political in this way. There were many taxes that they had to pay in those days. The one in this passage was known or concerning what's called the poll tax. P-O-L-L, the poll tax. It was also known as the census or head count. You saw this in Luke's account when Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem to be part of the census. The Greek word for tax used here was borrowed from a Latin word that gives us the English census. The Romans counted all the citizens and made each one pay an annual poll tax of one denarii, which was worth one day's worth of work. The people hated paying taxes to Rome. You would have the zealots, that would be one group. They hated, the, they refused actually to pay the tax. They would go to battle, just hence why the name zealots. We use it today to use as someone who is anti-something, someone who is, who is committed to a cause. Actually, one of Jesus' own disciples was a zealot, Simon the zealot. He was part of this group. They hated Rome. They wanted to seek to oust Rome at any point. And so they flat out refused to be censused and to, be, to, to pay that tax. The Pharisees, interesting enough, they disliked it, but they really, they didn't actively oppose it. It was something they might have preached about, taught about, but it was something that they were not seeking to overthrow. Whereas the Herodians who are here with the Pharisees, they actually had no objections to the tax at all. Why? Well, one is they're pro-Roman. So Herod would get some of that money. And number two, Herod and the people who were mainly Herodians were actually not taxed. So for them, tax all you want. We're, we don't have to pay it. So for them, it was no deal. But you have to remember that paying tax at its basis is shows submission to Rome. And so when they ask this question, they know that there are many different people listening to Jesus, and they're trying to get Jesus in political trouble. They were hoping that by answering, Jesus would alienate one of these groups and lose the influence and the power and the prestige that he had built up. Since they were not able to stop or prevent Jesus from ministry, they desired to cause division and discord, maybe even among his own disciples. They were hoping to undermine Jesus' support with the people or to accuse him of stirring up rebellion with Roman government. Could you imagine? Hey, Jesus says we shouldn't pay the tax. And so the Roman government would say, wait a second, here's an insurrection. Or others who would say, oh, Jesus says it's okay to pay the tax. And then you'd have the other people who would be angry with them. Because not only was it a political issue, but it was a theological issue. And this may be one that sometimes we may not understand as well. You see, Rome thought of their emperors as gods and as high priests. The denarius that Jesus is asking that you would have to pay. There was many different coins in the Roman day. But the denarius was a Roman coin. And on that coin was included with a picture of Caesar was the words, Son of the Divine Augustus. So for them, the coin really was a graven image that said, Here is God. 
And by paying that tax, you show submission to that God. The Roman coins were actually considered pagan to the Jews. It was idol worship to them. It was a graven image. And when they asked the question, is it lawful? They were not asking a political question. They were not asking, is it lawful for the Jews to do it by law? But they were actually asking if paying the tax was supported by the Mosaic law. For them, they're asking spiritually, is it right for us to submit to Rome and pay the tax? See, now they weren't really concerned with the Mosaic law. You and I have seen how the Pharisees have used and abused and mistaught the Mosaic law. But they desired to put Jesus into a bad spot. To some, to pay the tax was kind to burning your children at Moloch. However, what they did not understand is that actually the Roman occupation was actually a sign of divine judgment against their nation. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of the Babylonians. He came and he conquered Jerusalem and he dispersed the nation of Israel. Written hundreds of years before Rome was ever in existence, God had decided and described the future power of Rome. In there, you might remember the story that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a great image. In describing, he says, the head of the image was of gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. And its middle and its thigh was made of bronze. And its legs were legs of iron. And its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. This image represented the four kingdoms that would rule the known world at that time. You and I learned this at Western Civilization. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great with Greece, and eventually Rome. For Daniel, the prophet of God, interprets the purpose of these kingdoms, including Rome and God's plan, when he says that God changes times and seasons, he removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understandings. You, O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, the you, king of kings, God has given you this kingdom. And he's put into your hand all that you have. And wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, you are the rule of them. They didn't understand that actually their submission to Rome was a judgment of God. But they're wanting to use the word of God to say, is it lawful? So they have some political and theological stones or swords that they're trying to sharpen at this time. All in such a way as to trap Jesus, to degrade him, to tear up and sow discord. The fourth observation we see is Jesus sees through their ruse and into their hearts. He understands exactly what's going on here. He says, knowing their hypocrisy, he says, why do you put me to the test? The religious and political leaders resent Jesus, not only because he has captured the heart of the people, but they resent him because of their failure to use his popularity for their own agenda. See, what they did is they wanted to co-opt Jesus and use him as one of them, but Jesus would have no doing in that. He would have no truck with that. And so failure to use him or to manipulate him in any way, they were resentful. In last week's parable, the wicked tenant, 
That was in reference to questions concerning Jesus' authority. Who are you to do these types of things? Who are you to say such things? It was a parable of judgment that we read last week in which Jesus tells them that you're out of the kingdom of God. Not only that, not only are you out, but the kingdom of God is going to be given to other people. It's going to be ripped from you and taken and given to someone else. But as we learned last week, that sadly, hearing these words of judgment did not bring repentance, but actually hardened their hearts. Like Pharaoh listening to the words of Moses, he did not repent, but hardened his heart. And their hardened heart leads to judgment and replacement as mediators of God's kingdom. And Jesus recognizes and shows and exposes the hypocrisy of their heart. For they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. Because he knew, they knew that the parable of last week, the parable of judgment, was about them. So not only does Jesus see through their ruse and their heart, but fifthly, Jesus corrects that wrong view. He is not going to fall into their trap. He is not going to fall into their way of thinking, but he's going to change. He's going to correct it. For he says, bring me to Daenerys. And he says, whose image on it? And obviously they would see. It would either be Augustus or it would be Tiberius. It could have been either one of the Caesars at that time. But it still would have said the, the son of the divine Augustus. It still was pagan worship. And he says, whose image is on there? And they says, well, it says Caesar's. And he says the words that make them the marvel. Well, render under Caesar's those things which are Caesar's. Now the Greek word for render means to pay or to give back. It implies a debt. All who lived within the realm of Caesar were actually obligated to return to him the tax that was owed him. It was not optional. Thus, Jesus declared that for all citizens are under divine obligation to pay taxes to whatever government is over them. Rome provided many services to its citizens and territories such as roads and aqueducts, many which are still standing to this day, bridges, and even protection from their enemies. However, Jesus is not coming here to overthrow the Roman political system. No, he says, render, give to Caesar what is due Caesar. That is your obligation. For he doesn't come to overthrow the Roman authorities, which is what they are desiring him to do, but he comes to actually overthrow the Jewish religious system. It was their authority, it was their leadership that he was set out to overthrow. For Jesus came to build his kingdom. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the kingdom that God has come to make a foundation and to build. As you see, the church is the visible expression of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It's not an earthly or political or national kingdom. And seeking to bind him into some uh, synopsis or just some thinking of worldly thinking. Jesus says, you're not thinking correctly. This belongs into the realm of Caesar's, so give it to Caesar. But there's, there's another thing, there's another kingdom that you owe submission to. If you were to look at John chapter 18, Jesus answered him, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is from the world, as he spoke to Pilate. And Pilate said, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born. 
And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, but yet the Pharisees, it fell on the deaf ears. What is the truth? Well, the truth of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of worldliness. It's not a matter of nations, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's about our hearts. It's about who we are not where we live and what we do. Whoever thus serves Christ, he says, is acceptable to God and approved by man. What does this mean for you and I? What is this saying? What Jesus is doing is God is calling us to visibly embrace his invisible kingdom. And our vision here at OVBC is for you and I to become seekers of the kingdom of God. Yet God still calls us to submit to the government of men. So is it lawful? Yes, God has called us to submit, and to pay the obligation that we owe. You see, we as kingdom seekers actually have dual citizenship. We are not of this world, but you and I have been left, if we're here for a purpose, in John 17. I encourage you to read this great chapter. It's where Jesus is actually praying for his disciples. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, speaking to the Father, I have sent them into the world, speaking of his disciples. He says, Pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's speaking to you and I. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. God has called us to submit to government, for it is a way of salvation. Again, Jesus Messiah is not here to provide instant political independence from Rome or even from this world. D.A. Carson writes that the messianic community that Jesus determines to build must render to whatever Caesar who is in power, whatever belongs to that Caesar, while never turning from its obligations to God. So while they're seeking to divide, God is actually bringing together. John Piper writes in his book, What Jesus Demands in the World, he writes that the answer demands radical allegiance to God's supreme authority over all things. That's what he's called for you and I. But he also says Jesus wisely left the scope of these two ownerships and authorities for the listener to answer. So for you and I, who do we submit to? You may ask, well, how does this look? How does this look to Mark's readers? How does this look for us today? Well, I want to share with you very quickly. It's very simple. As while they're seeking to discredit Jesus, to sow discord and to trap him, Jesus is actually saying that submission is the role of a genuine Christian. God has called you and I to show submission to authority. In 1 Peter chapter 2, would you take a look at that very quickly with me? 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter takes the teachings of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, he expands and shares with us how we're to apply what Jesus says when he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, render the things that are God the things that are God. Looking at verses 13 through 17, we're going to look at 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme, verse 14, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And I believe if you go down to verse 17, he says, love the brotherhood, fear God, do what? Honor the emperor. He is called a smith. A little bit earlier, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I'm here to tell you the reason Hitler was in existence was because of God. Stalin, because of God. Saddam Hussein, because of God. Barack Obama, because of God. Thomas Jefferson, because of God. All authority is instituted by God and given to man. And he calls us to submit. Now very quickly, you could turn to 1 Timothy. Is Why should you and I submit? Especially if that government may be evil. If that government is corrupt. Why are we called to submit? Look at this. I think this, this really sums it well. Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and be thanksgiving be made for all people. You and I will accept that. But he goes on to say in verse 2, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Amen? That's what he's called us to do. But look at the last verse. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By rendering to Caesar, they ultimately render to God. By submitting to Caesar, they submit to God, who puts all things then under Christ. Submitting to the government is one way to present the gospel. He says he desires all people to be saved. How do we do that? By submitting to the government, because we will then live godly, pleasing lives. But you may ask, what if that authority is corrupt or we disagree? What if it is a, a Hitler? What if it is a place that is communist or, or a place that is corrupt? John Piper notes that God's supreme authority limits the authority of Caesar and the allegiance we owe to him. So yes, we owe our allegiance. We render to Caesar's. Those things are Caesar's. But when he says, look at that image, he rendered certain things to Caesar's and certain things to God. What if Caesar claims what is God's? Well, God has the priority. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the disciples, the apostles, they're preaching that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. That doesn't set well with the people. They had killed Jesus, and here he is. His disciples are now willing to continue to express who Jesus is. But not only that, they've made things worse because now they're saying that Jesus has raised from the dead. We were wrong. They're telling us that we're guilty of killing the Son of God. In response, they begin to beat the disciples. They begin to demand and to warn them, do not preach Christ. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So there are times in our lives where you and I may be called to deny the authority of our leaders. 
You and I are commanded to submit to the government when it comes to the issues of social and economic realm. Render to Caesars those things are Caesars. But you and I are also commanded to submit to God in the areas that are the spiritual and the religious. There may be times when those things, as we're going to see, collide. Again, John Piper writing in what Jesus demands from the world listens to this. The principle is this. There are at times reasons to submit to an authority that arise not from the intrinsic right of the authority, but from the principle of freedom and what would be for the greater good. So applying this to a Caesar, the principle would go like this. Listen, God owns Caesar. Amen? God owns Caesar. God has absolute authority over Caesar, whomever, whatever Caesar may be. This all-authoritative God is our Father. We are His children. Therefore, the demands of Caesar to fund his government are not absolutely binding on us. Our Father owns the government. We are free. In fact, the whole earth is ours. For you and I will inherit the earth. That's what he says in Matthew 5, 5. Nevertheless, in this freedom, should we pay Caesar's taxes? Well, yes, because that would lead to the greatest good, as we saw in 1 Timothy. For those things are Caesar. And because our Father bids us to render under Caesar, we cannot take the words of Christ here and throw them out. In this way, we can see how God's supreme ownership over all things not only warrants and limits but it also shapes the way we express our earthly allegiances. You may ask them, well, why are Christians today, why are churches today fighting or resisting the government? Why are they resisting many things that the government is saying? And let me give you a few examples. Why are Christians and churches and pastors, why are they resisting the government's edicts, the government's decisions on marriage? whether it's gay, polygamy, polymory, or other some type of redefinition? Why is churches and Christians fighting what the government is saying about gender identity issues? Why is it fighting against abortion when it is the law of the land? Why are we fighting against cultural issues such as marijuana or the death penalty or the right to die? Why are Christians fighting against the governments here? Should we not render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? If they say that it's legal for you to commit suicide or for doctors suicide, should we not go for it? Is it not okay? If they make a law, should we just say, well, that's Caesar's realm? I think the short answer is similar to the religious leaders of our passage. You and I must ask, is it lawful? Now, in that, I'm not saying, is it lawful according to our Constitution? Is it lawful according to the world ethic? In other words, how do you and I know when an issue transcends man's territory and authority and transcends onto God's? I would answer with the same question that Jesus answered. Give me the coin. Give me the issue. And let me ask you, whose image is on the coin? Are you following with me? Jesus said, give me the coin. 
So when these issues that we're talking about, I say, give me the coin. In other words, for gender, give me the coin, the issue of gender. Whose image is gender? Scripture says that we were made male and female. There are no other distinctions. God purposely created us personally. There are no accidents. If you are male, you are male by God's design. If you are female, you are female by God's design. And you may say, what about those that have both sexes? There's still one sex or the other. There are no third options. So in that image, we are created in God's image. So when it comes to gender identity, that's the image of God. Surrender to God, the things that are God. So Caesar now is trying to say something different than what God's word is saying. You may say, what about marriage? Well, let me get the coin, the issue, the image of that coin. Marriage was created to display the gospel. It was to be a monogamous relationship between one man, one woman. Now that's not only in the Old Testament, but it's also the words of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so when we have uh, the government that now says, we are now going to redefine marriage. I say, wait a second, give me the coin. Whose image is on this coin? For God created marriage. God defined marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, it was not created just for procreation, which is one of its purposes, but also to display the gospel. To display Christ's relationship with the church. So I say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, but the things that are God. Things that are God. So do we submit to Caesar in this case? No. For it's taking its image and trying to appropriate what is God's for themselves. Now let me give you the image, the issue of life and death. Once again, whether it's abortion, whether it's the right to die, and this is a big issue, right to die is a big issue. Whether it's either someone who's badly ill and wants to seek it, you and I are going to have to face these issues. And I'm going to tell you, every issue that I just shared, you and I know someone probably by now personally who has taken the other side. And culturally, you and I are now maligned and discredited in the world's commerce. You and I actually no longer have a voice. They say, no, the government has spoken. And I say, yes, but God has spoken greater. His voice is louder. His judgment is sure. And his image is on that. So when it comes to the right to die, when it comes to abortion, I say God is the giver and taker of life, the word says. We are made in the image of God, meaning that each life is precious. For you and I, Brandon did a, a debate on this issue of, of gene manipulation now that's taking place before the womb and even during the womb. We can now have designer children. What should we think about this? The government is approving some of these things. How about cloning? Give me the coin. Give me the coin. Whose image is in that coin? You say, wait a second, what about my relationship with someone I might be living with that I might be, you know, not in marriage? Give me the coin. Give me the coin. Whose image? How about in parenting? Give me the coin. You see, we render the things to Caesar, the things that are Caesar. And we render to God the things that are God. And when they come in conflict, and they will come in conflict, you and I, 
must, like John and Peter and James, who gave his life, said, we must obey God rather than men. And I'm here to tell you, thank you for that. I'm here to tell you that you and I need to think these deep thoughts. We need to come together and understand. For we are being persuaded. We have some in our congregation who are being persuaded to follow Caesar. And we must stand with love and encouragement and say, no, this belongs to God. It has the stamp of God on it. That is not going to be popular. It's going to cost you something to do it. And some of you have already paid the cost because you've had a family, a friend who has come out as homosexual or some other thing. We're living in a day and age, if you were to say men are men and women are women, you're, that's hate speech. Maybe it will maybe even cost us financially. but I'm reminded of the words of one Chinese pastor who in a world magazine, I have that in the back if you'd like to read it, in an article entitled The Long Road, he's speaking about the persecution that's facing the house churches and Christians by the government. The government says, we have set up churches. If you want to go to these state churches, you may, but you cannot have your house churches. Do not preach the gospel. And they're destroying these homes and they're destroying these churches by the thousands. It's in the news if you can find it every day. Much of the news is not covering it. You find it actually in Syria and other places where ISIS is destroying. There are no longer any Christians hardly in Syria and Iraq. Even during Saddam Hussein, there used to be a flourishing Christian group. But America has gone and opened the doors for those churches and those Christians to be decimated. They're not even allowed into the country. So what do you do when your country is corrupt? What if your government starts to persecute because you deny or refuse to give to Caesar that which belongs to God? Listen what he says. Can you get this? Pay attention clearly, please. This Chinese pastor who has lost his house, who has been arrested, who has seen friends die and put into prison and put into labor camps. Listen to what he says. Our purpose isn't to avoid persecution. See, in America, that's what we try to do. We want to avoid persecution. But listen to what he says. Our purpose as Christians is not to avoid persecution, but to bring both our faith and the persecution we face out into the open. He says, I want to make it very clear to everyone that the cross of Christ is here. The gospel is here. And through our persecution, they will see that we are the light and the salt of the earth. It is through our persecution and even our death, shouted the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, that this is real. Amen? So for you and I, let's embrace the persecution that's coming. Let us embrace the ridicule. Let us embrace the loss of those things once we held dear. Let us say, give me the image. Give me the coin. Whose image? Let us embrace it. For in it, God is purifying His church. He is purifying 
those that are his. Now, I will also say as a, as a side mark, we need to be thankful that we live in a country in which you and I, through the government, can change laws. That we can be influential in our representative government. And we should take advantage of every legal means that we can to change the law and elect those that hold the image of God. But when that day fails and we no longer can, would you pray for the strength and the boldness to stand for the things of God no matter what the cost? Bring me the coin whose image. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to things that are God the things of God. But let us not forget that God is over all. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Would you take a moment to just pause to consider and to pray and to respond? What is God calling you today? In what ways do you need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? In what ways do you need to render the things that are God, the things that are God? Father, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. For even good, loving Christians will disagree on whose coin and whose image belongs on it. And when that happens, give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Lord, as we debate these issues as we talk out this issue may your word give us clarity may your spirit give us discernment to understand and then lord make us ready for such things for we live in troubling trying times prepare our hearts for the suffering for the persecution and father may we embrace it and may we stand and say give to god the glory In your name we pray amen We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.